Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 65, and my guest is Jeremy Indica. A word of warning, this conversation includes details of child sex abuse that some listeners might find disturbing. However, it's a subject that Jeremy wants more people to be aware of, because it is, he says, everybody's concern. You may have children in your family, or know somebody who has children in their family, or just simply care for the well-being of young people. There is an element of risk with every child, we know that, whether that be direct grooming and sexual abuse or inappropriate behaviour online. It's everywhere. So what can we do about it? Well, first things first, Jeremy wants to raise awareness and to get this subject in front of more people. He wants to open conversations and aim some of them towards education systems and in the home. He thinks the only way to do this is to become more creative, for example, using film, photography and illustrations. He wants to make the content more interesting and engaging for the viewer. By turning what was once an uncomfortable topic into one that people want to know more about, he believes more can be achieved to prevent future victims. Nice to meet you, Jeremy. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I know what we're about to talk about or some of the details is quite sensitive. So I'm kind of warning the listeners that, you know, we might go down a, a space that might be sensitive, but it's an important subject to talk about. And and I want to show my appreciation for you being, I don't know whether brave is the right word, but but willing is, is definitely the right um, sentiment to say that you are trying to give a voice to people that don't often or can't often share this this kind of space because of its sensitivity. Let me ask you first by, um, you, you've got a website, something to say. What is the purpose of that website, Jeremy? And again, thank you for coming on to share your story and, and details. 
Yeah, thank you. Just like to say thank you for having me on the podcast. It's just incredible to try. I'm really trying my hardest to get my story and story like stories like mine out to more people. And that's one of the big reasons why I created the website. The website is has all the content that I've created so far on this subject of child sexual abuse using film, photography, animation. It's also got how I got to this stage and the vision for the future. And it's also got a very interesting platform within it where I've now provided a space for other people to share their stories. So it's really like a collection of the project. And and hopefully with people visiting the website, it will show them kind of what my vision is and, and where I'm trying to go with this. Um, and why is that important? I know you know, child sexual abuse is a difficult and very sensitive subject for people to talk about, especially when you've been, I hesitate to say victim, because, you, you know, that's where some people start from saying you're a victim. But, but obviously, when when you become empowered, and you take control of that situation, and um, you turn things around, what, what are you hoping that the website itself will will give people? So there's a lot of content on there, as you say, videography, photographs, and and it's a tough one for people to go to, or is it? You tell me, based on your experience, when people visit your website, you know, when you talk about sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, it, you know, people want to steer away from that stuff because it's really, really hard. Or or is it? You tell me, Jeremy. Okay, so the website has two functions. It has two purposes that I'm really, really aiming for. The first one is, for anybody that has been through an experience like this in their childhood, I want my work and the work that's being created with the team of people I'm working with to for them to watch it or see it and feel represented by it. But also, on the other hand, I want people who have never really come across this subject in, in any kind of detail to watch what is the content and, and to, once they've finished watching it, feel like, wow, I've never thought about it like that before. Or core I feel so much more aware of my surroundings for the children in my own family now so they're the two main aims of of the work that I'm producing and the importance of it is that this situation that we've all got on our hands is everyone's concern and the reason why I say that is because everybody has a child in their family or has a friend that has a child or has general care or concern for children in general. And so this is everyone's concern. Unfortunately, I think, I feel like we're in a situation where this feels like it's something that only happens in certain places, only in certain societies, only in certain social statuses. When, if we really admit it to ourselves, we know that that is not the case. It is everywhere. For somebody who who wants to go to the website, just tell me what what the website URL is. And when people click on the website, what can they expect to find? What will they find on there when you say it's there to make people more aware and to tackle this subject in a way where people are not offended, I, I, I say, but they are educated, they're informed, and therefore they can take action if it's necessary or they can be more vigilant, more aware of of certain things. So tell me a little bit about what people will find when they go to the website beyond, you know, the fo- photography, the, the video. I mean, what, what, what is that content? What does it do? So the website URL is www.jeremyindica.com and Indica is spelled I-N-D-I-K-A. And what you will find on that website is some information about statistics. 
some people sharing their stories from different angles, what situation they were in, why they think it happened. But you will also find so so let me start by saying a lot of what I write and a lot of what I create is largely stemmed from what I think could have been done to prevent what happened to me. That's a good starting point, I feel. Because if I can look back at what happened to me when I was eight years old, what could have been done to prevent it? What was going what was not what was going wrong in those days in 1993 that led this to happen and it, for it to go unnoticed and for me to be silent about it? And then I then I created a lot of work, videos on well, what's going on now? Has anything changed? Has it changed? What's going on in the education system? What can we do as people with the children around us to reduce the risk of this happening? An example of that is to just have open conversations with children about their body parts, their private areas, and what to do if anybody was to go near them. Now, the first time somebody hears that concept, they may feel some resistance of having that kind of conversation with a child. But my argument is we teach our children about stranger danger. You don't talk to children, sorry, you don't talk to strangers because they may take you away from mummy and daddy. That's what we say. And that's necessary education. I'm completely for that. So if we're if we're happy to give the stranger danger education, which is quite a scary concept for a child, then why wouldn't we teach them about private areas and what to do if anybody goes near them? Because that's not that scary. You know, you could do it with a five or six-year-old. You could draw a picture of a human a human body. You could circle the areas that nobody is to go near. And you say, look, if anybody touches you, if anybody goes near you in these areas, just tell mommy and daddy and that's it. Because that's one thing that I know if I had more education on there would have been a higher chance that I'd have been like, oh my God, what I'm involved in is 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 against those rules. I better tell somebody. So that's one of my big passions. My big passions is opening these conversations. This subject doesn't have to be as scary as the media portrays it, right? It is important and urgent, but we need to talk about it in a way that people want to know more because otherwise we're just going to continually shy away from it and then it's all going on in the background where we're we're facing we're facing right and it's all going on over over in the left hand side and all these children are being sexually abused now let me just take a moment to mention that term sexual abuse when we hear child sexual abuse i don't think we really think about what it is in fact i feel like that term is just a label that we can hide behind because the reality of it is so horrific. If you were to really think about a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old doing what we consider, what we know that only adults should do on adults, if you visualize just for a moment a five-year-old doing something sexual to an adult, you cannot even believe that vision. You can't even believe it. But there are millions of videos available online of that material. Millions of videos. We know that. Nobody's denying that. So if I can try my best to try to get to, to, to communicate this subject in ways 
Like, look, I made this animation, right? I work with a London company, King Bee Animations. It's a two-minute long animation. It's a black and white animation. It's a cartoon. And I put it online. I made it. It took a year to make. I made it. And it is, it's using my story. We, we created a character, me, essentially. And we moved that character through the grooming process. And I wanted to use it to show that the grooming process is such a powerful process. People are like, how could a child ever do something? My child would never do that. How would a child ever do that? The grooming process is so powerful. I wanted to use this animation to show that, to show how somebody can befriend a child very easily and get them over time to do do something that's pushing the boundaries, then do the next thing, then do the next thing, whilst telling that child that if they continue to do these things, they'll be a good boy or a good girl, or they'll be the best, or we'll be better friends. So I use this animation to show parents, especially, the grooming process and how effective it is, and that the importance of conversation. So it doesn't always have to be like scary, like the media portray it as something like crazy and scary. It's like, no, no, no. This is a conversation we all need to be having. And people often think that that they know it. People think that they, as you said earlier, that, that it's not going to happen to my child because I'm, I'm aware of whose company they're in. I'm aware of who's looking after them. I'm aware of many other things where I feel that I've put my child in a safe place if they're not with me directly. And I myself am not the abuser. Obviously, we know that parents are often involved in the sexual abuse of their own children. But you're arguing that even when parents believe that their child is safe with their babysitter or with their guy, uh, a minder or, or at school or any other environment, that they are not, I mean, let's not ramp this up to the point where all children are you, you know, potential victims, I suppose they are to some extent to, to any kind of predator, child sexual abuse predator. But it sounds to me that what you're saying is that even parents that feel that they are protecting their children in the best possible way they can, some do slip through the net because these groomers, these predators are skilled at what they do. We read about that. We read about certain stories but you've lived that experience. You've been through that experience. And your website and the content on your website, you hope to 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 make people more aware of things they might not be aware of and the little bit more that they can do in order to to protect their children in the best possible way, even if they think they're doing it as best as they can. Absolutely. Because as a as a parent or a guardian, you can never be a hundred percent sure. You can never be a hundred percent sure. The only way to be 100% sure is to follow your child around for their whole life everywhere until they're 18. That's the only way. Not take your eyes off them. And you can't do that because they go to school. They go to sports clubs. They go to friends' houses. So if if we can never be 100% sure, then why not just have some simple conversations? Why haven't we got these things in the education system? on a continuous basis, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to save the child that does slip through the net. We're trying to save the young boy that is groomed in a situation like by their football coach, which seems to be a very common one coming out in the press these at the moment. We're trying to save the young girl that's groomed by, by their babysitter or their uncle 
We're trying to stop those ones that slip through the net. We, and, and, and I think actually the word predator then gives us the illusion that these people are all crazy, sad, lonely men that we can spot a mile off. The man that abused me when I was eight years old, he abused me for two years. It was horrific sexual abuse, everything but penetration. He was 25 years old. He was a nurse working for the NHS. And he was a close family friend. He was a quiet, gentle, kind man. So this is why I'm really trying to push for this. Yes, you can be very, very confident. You know where your children are going. You know who they're being looked after. You know that all the clubs that they're going to, if they do go to clubs, are certified and checked. Yes, all of those things. They're all fantastic things. But now, actually, as I'm talking, I'm thinking to myself, well, if we relate this back to the stranger conversation, I mean, parents would say it's very unlikely. I mean, it's hugely unlikely your child would be snatched in any situation. But we still give the stranger conversation because we know it could be 0.1% that that could happen. 0.1%. So we give the stranger danger conversation because we don't want our children talking to people who they don't know because they may get taken away. So why wouldn't we have these other conversations? Sex is such a funny subject because when it comes to minors talking to, when it comes to adults talking to minors about sex, we we get so embarrassed about it or awkward about it. We're, We're unsure how to do it, even though sex is the most natural thing that we do as human beings. It's the thing we all desire. It's the thing we all adjust our lives for in some way. It's the reason why we're all here. Yet we don't, we feel like it's early to talk to a 10 year old about how they were created. When if these conversations weren't so, if we weren't so embarrassed and awkward about it and it was just open, you know, we're not, we're not talking about details of sex with a seven year old because they won't fully grasp that but just the nature of it, then it won't become so stigmatized. It won't become so silenced. And then we can try our hardest to stop this from happening to so many children. Jeremy, can I ask what what happened to you? You've mentioned a couple of times that you you were sexually abused, horrifically sexually abused. Talk me through your your story, how old you were at the time and and, and what happened. in any way you want, obviously. So I was eight years old. I was a lively, confident, social boy, your usual boy, full of energy, doing excellent at school. Just a just a really nothing unusual about my character. Now, this guy had access to me through certain avenues. Again, 25, he was 25 years old, he was a nurse, he was just your average man close family friend. Now, he began to groom me into sexual activity. Now, at the time, when I think about my mind at that time, I believed that what we were doing was special for our friendship. He led me to believe that the things we were doing was something that we should do together. It it made us cool. It made us strong. But wrapped in that is that nobody should find out because if anybody was to find out we'd both be in massive trouble 
Now, I am eight years old. It's 1993. There's no internet. There's no music videos like they are today with suggestive sexual connotation. There's no TV like there is today. So as an eight-year-old boy living in 1993, the idea of sex, I didn't even know what it was. So I couldn't label what me and him were doing. It was just something that me and him did. I didn't know that it's what adults should be doing, not me. So he pushed me stage by stage. It was kissing. It was fondling. It was touching. It was oral. Now, the oral is an is a interesting and important point to the story because I used to remember when it was my turn to do it to him, I remember not liking it. The taste was disgusting. The feeling was disgusting. But I had no education of how to express myself, how to tell anybody. I had no education that what we were doing was sex and that it was wrong. So I just continued. It was like my norm. Now, this went on for two years. Now, when it stopped because he moved location, I just returned back to the boy that I was before excelling in school, still confident, still social, loads of friends. I even ask the parents that knew me back back in those days that still know me now, now that you know what happened to me, when you look back, could you think like now in hindsight, if you could, you would have been able to spot anything? And they're like, Jeremy, you know what? You would have been the last person we would have thought captain in all the teams at school because stereotypically we think if this happens to you as a child you're a recluse it's not always the case we think if this happens to you when you're a child that you're you you can't make friends you're unsocial your your life's just gone downhill now I continued my life and I grew into a teenager and a young man and I had a successful career as a design engineer I was working all around the world I was designing prestigious projects. I was working at McLaren in England on supercars. Like everything was going so, so well. Now, I'd never forgotten about what happened. It was always there, but I didn't care about it. I was out partying. I was having a good time. Something would remind me of the memory here and there when the Jimmy Savile case came out in the UK, when somebody would say something in passing. It would remind me of the abuse, but I didn't really care. I just push it to the side. But then at 25 years old, everything changed. I literally, I just couldn't get rid of it. The memories were in my head 24-7. I felt sad. I felt angry. And I felt angry and sad because it was when I thought about that eight-year-old boy that I was and how he got manipulated and how he got taken advantage of. That's where those emotions come from. So I decided that after the memory started hitting me harder and harder from 25 years old, that I needed to tell somebody. I felt an urge to tell somebody and kind of get it off my chest. And when I did that, it was the most incredible feeling of release. It really was. It's unexplainable. I didn't expect it to have that kind of reaction. I felt strong. I felt confident. And the friend that I disclosed to gave me the perfect um, response, which was support, 
letting me know if I needed anything, that he'll be there, belief and just all the emotions of hearing something so shocking. And from then, that is when I started to speak to more people. I just thought people need to know about this thing. So I just started to speak to all of my friends one by one over the years. And that's when I decided to try to find this man that did this to me. I hadn't seen him for 25 years. And that's when I contacted him. I found him on Facebook and I contacted him saying, look, we need to chat. Like we need to talk about things that went on 25 years ago. Now, of course he denied it. Denied it point blank. So I reported him to the police. And that's where that's where the prosecution story starts. Before you describe what happened, can I just take you back to, just to understand this, um, based on what we talked about previously, we are, you're eight years old, you've been groomed by this, this man, and you're doing things because he said it was cool and all the reasons that you didn't understand. Who, who was around you at the time, your immediate family, your parents, or, or who was around you that were oblivious to this going on? That That's the first question, but coupled to that, Jeremy... I'm intrigued that as an eight-year-old, because I don't understand this world at all, as an eight-year-old, why does something not slip out to somebody? Even though the groomer is saying to you that we need to keep it to ourselves because if somebody finds out you're getting trouble, as an eight-year-old, they often slip up and they sort of say, oh, no, Bob um, showed me that thing that gets hard or whatever it is. Just just explain to me and to people listening wh- why that doesn't happen. Because as we said earlier, most people think that kids are even that young, able to sort of say things that they don't know what they're saying, but it reveals what is happening to them. I'm going to say that all children have secrets that they're never telling their parents. Let's take an, any eight-year-old boy that's a little mischievous, like I was, He's a little naughty here and there, pretty confident in himself. You're not telling mum and dad everything that went on in the playground. Far from it. If your friend tells you something like they smoked a cigarette, let's just take that. I know we're we're probably an age, discussing an age that's too young for that. But let's say that happened. You're never telling your parents about that. You're never slipping up. You know, let's say you broke a rule at school, right? Unless the teacher goes and tells your parents, you're never saying anything. You'll never, your parents will never get that out of you. So this should be likened to that. And I know they seem like two worlds completely different, but the concept is the same. The concept is the same. Every child today has got plenty of secrets that their friend did this or their brothers or their or their friend's brother did this or they did this. They're never telling anyone. And for the people that were around me at the time, how did they not notice? Well, why would they notice? You know, this was going on in the bedroom when we were watching a film. Unless somebody was to, had to have walked in at that moment, they would have never found out. You know, this was when I was around his house being looked after. This was when we were at this place or this place. It was going on all the time. Nobody was none the wiser. Like I say, you cannot have your eyes on your child 24-7. 
So what's going on at the football club? What's going on at school? What's going on around friends' houses? You don't know. But you may find out in 20 years. And and there is a there is a strong confusion, and I understand why that's there, of why people are waiting so long to say something. You know, 25 years, it was the actual age was 27 until I actually said something. But you must have known, um, surely, obviously, that there come a point in your teenage years where you were more aware of, you, you know, what, what it is that happened to you as an eight-year-old um, and, and you, you, you were able to push it. Is that, is that because you felt some kind of shame yourself? I mean, why were you able to just put it aside or was you at that age, do you at that age think, well, I was just as responsible as that person because you knew nothing different? But even even then, it's a hard thing to, to ask. But I suppose at what point, at what age did you know yourself, Jeremy, that you'd been sexually abused, but you were still able to put it to the back of your mind to continue just living your life, the life that you've described? I believe that the the, the small thoughts of, oh, my goodness, what happened to me is so wrong – began when I started having getting with girls at school I believe because when I started engaging in sexual activity myself at the natural ages that it should have happened that it was happening then that's when little thoughts were coming in my mind of ah that was that was really bad but I was of no maturity to deal with this even at 21 looking back at it now I wasn't ready then and what was I not ready for what was I not ready for? It's actually a really good question. I was not ready to admit that I had been involved in that situation. Let's 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 go a little bit younger. 18-year-old Jeremy. What 18-year-old Jeremy, heterosexual 18-year-old Jeremy, bit of a lad, likes going out for beers with the boys, likes going partying at the weekend, likes getting the girls. What what part of that 18-year-old Jeremy wants to admit that he was in this situation with this man 20 years ago. No no teenage boy wants to admit that. There's an embarrassment there. There's an embarrassment that I was manipulated enough to do those horrific things. Now, there's a very, very clever metaphor that psychologists use, and I, and I try to say this as much as I can. When something traumatic happens to you when you're a child, you're of no maturity to deal with it. It's too much for you to to piece that puzzle together in any way. So what you do is you put it in a box, you shut the box and you lock it. You put it to the back of your mind. Your brain does that for you. Traumatic experiences, traumatic events. It puts it to the box and puts it to the back of your mind. Now, as you come to a maturity level where you're starting to be able to deal with those kind of situations, the brain then starts bringing the box to the front of the mind and starts opening it just slightly. Now, I believe that's what happened at 25 for me because I was at a stage where I was like, right now, because they have to be dealt with because if they're not dealt with, they're suppressed. And then that causes, I believe that's going to cause you serious mental health issues, life issues, relationship issues, etc. It's so crazy. The whole situation is so crazy. At 25, 27, you then decided that you were going to speak out and you started speaking to friends. You you contacted the, the abuser. Although he denied it, you then turned the police on to him. What happened to your abuser? 
So he denied all the claims and the case lasted nine months, full investigation, and the case was closed in the end. The case was closed due to insufficient evidence. Now, we are all angry at that result as a society. However, I just say to anybody that's listening that just felt that anger, don't be angry because it's not useful for us to be angry. Well, that's not true. Don't feel too much anger because there is no evidence. We can't prosecute somebody with no evidence. We can't prosecute somebody because I said something, right? So that's the law. That's the system. Something that I will always be angry with for the rest of my life is when I gave my statement, which was three hours long, and the police had spoken to the first 10 people that I spoke to, they put him on voluntary arrest, which meant he was allowed to come to the station whenever he, you know, under his means. Now, what that did was gave him an opportunity, if he had anything on his computer, to wipe it. And we will never, ever get that opportunity back. That's gone forever. Because if he had something on his computer, that would have been the bit of evidence for me to prosecute him. Now, I'm not saying that because it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Jeremy, you didn't get to prosecute the man that did this to me. It's bigger than that. The situation is larger than that. And the reason why I say that is because now we have a man in the community that he lives in with a tendency towards children and nobody's monitoring him. When we manage a prosecution against these people, yes, there is some relief or some satisfaction from the victim, let's say. But Actually, the benefit is we take that person out of the community for the sentence that they've been given, and that just reduces the risk that they will offend. That's what we're after. And I couldn't get that with my abuser. So now he's out. Who knows what job he's doing? Who knows what he's doing online? And then that's it. So it was a failed prosecution attempt against him. Now, once that had finished, I actually was still working as a mechanical engineer and I decided that I wanted to start going public with my story because I had spoken to many people about the abuse, the people that were close to me and now I decided that what I wanted to do was go public because I had done some research online about surviving trauma, paedophilia, what's going on out there and I'd seen the amount of people that this is happening to and I thought, you know what, I should go public with my story and I started speaking at open mic nights in London. So I would just, that for anybody that's never been to an open mic night, that is a night that you get five, you can sign up on the door and you get five minutes on stage to perform what you want. You can perform music, you can perform singing, poetry or storytelling. So I went as a storyteller. I started talking about the grooming process. I started talking about what could have been done to prevent it. I started talking about the people that are doing these things. And as I was delivering those performances, I couldn't get over the fact that he denied everything. I thought to myself, if you were man enough to do all of that stuff to me, you should be man enough now to admit that it happened. That was my view. Now, of course, he's never going to admit what happened because that is the one crime on this planet that nobody is excusing or shows sympathy for. That is the most horrific crime. If you are labelled with that, you are out of society. But again, it's funny though, isn't it? That is the most heinous crime, but still nobody's talking about it.
So I was so angry that he denied it. I just couldn't believe it. I just decided that, you know what? He should face me. He should face me. He should face me and hear what I've got to say. So I started looking for him. And the way I looked for him was I knew he worked for the NHS and I knew the rough location of the country that he lived in. So I started to, so I thought, well, you know what? Hospitals are open places. I can just walk into hospitals. So surely I have his name. I can walk into hospital, go to the front desk and say, hiya, is blah, blah here. And then they'd be like, oh no, I just check on the database and, and he works here. And then I'd be able to find him. I thought it'd be as easy as that. But data protection meant that um, it wasn't as easy as that. So I couldn't find him in that way. I was again frustrated. Now I did a few more things that unfortunately I can't detail, which I will explain why I can't detail my actions of how I in the end managed to find out where he lives. I'll explain that a little bit later, but I managed to find out where he lives. And I drove to the house and I knocked on the door. Now, some people are like, that is so crazy. And my answer is, why is that crazy? He's just another man. He's just another bloke. The fact that he had manipulated me as an eight-year-old doesn't make him like some, he's no threat to me now. You know, I'm 35, I was 35 years old at the time. He's no threat to me. In fact, I, I put a bet on it. I'm twice the size of him. He's definitely not a physical threat to me. Right, the, the threat is psychological, made up in my head, purely manifest, manufactured in my head, purely. So I knocked on the door and he answered. He recognized me straight away, went to slam the door shut and I managed to hold it open. And I got my five minutes in front of him to say every single thing that I wanted to say to him. I called him out on everything. I, I did not hold back. Now, he's continuing to try to slam the door shut. He's trying to push me out the way. And I'm just like a solid block. And I said, I just said to him, just calm down. What's the panic? What's the panic? Just calm down, mate. But I'm just trying to have a conversation with you here. He was going, oh, God, you're going all crazy. Now, his wife was in the background. His wife, because he has family now, was in the background calling the police. It must have sounded like I had them at gunpoint. It was chaos. It was serious chaos. A few minutes later, the police arrived. Three police cars, blue lights, the lot. And they jump out of their car and they come for me. Because on the phone, it must have sounded like I was really trying to do damage. They surrounded me and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I just pointed to him at the door and I said, that's the man that was sexually abusing me when I was a child. And I've come to speak to him about it. And it just changed everything. Their demeanor changed, their body language changed because they were like, what the, f what? Like, they just couldn't believe it. You could see straight away, I wasn't there to cause trouble. And also I wasn't, obviously nobody's lying about this type of thing, you know? But anyway, we, both, we got interviewed at the scene, brief interview. What? Yeah, go for it, Raphael. Well, I was going to ask what his wife's reaction was, and you say that they had children, so it must have triggered, I don't know, what happened after that. But if his wife was unaware of 
he he's abuser, uh, uh, unaware that he was a, a, an abuser of you. What, what was her reaction? I mean, surely she was overhearing you telling the police why you were there, etc. Um, how, how did that play out? So she was involved in the initial prosecution. So when I tried to prosecute him initially, she had to give statements, how long she's known him, a character reference. So she's been involved in the whole thing. So in 2018, when I tried to prosecute him and this landed in their life, it probably blew her mind and probably still does. And then they managed to get rid of the case and they probably slept quiet for the first night in, in the year. And then I turn up at the house. Now, anybody in their right mind is like, hang on a minute. All right. Initially, this guy was trying to prosecute my husband and I just thought he was a madman. Now he's turned up at the door. Surely you've got to be thinking there's something in this. It's undeniable. But the brain works in funny ways. She's got to defend her family and her, her the, whole, the whole life she ever knew. The whole life she ever knew. It's now in threat of being a full lie. So she may, her, her mind may allow her to deny, deny this for the rest of her life. And I suppose she has to, depending on what she really knows or doesn't know, and, and I don't know if you're privileged to that, but if they have children, then it must now concern her if she herself is not involved in any way. It must concern, I can't imagine how, you know, she herself may be a victim, not of sexual abuse, but of a victim that she didn't know her husband, partner now with kids was an abuser. And whether or not he has over the years abused his own children. And, and I'm sure she's having to, if she hasn't already dealt with, with, with that. Um, and you don't know whether anything's come of that. But my question is, when you were taken by the police and questioned what come of that doorstepping situation? I'm going to say that once we had been interviewed at the door and they both decided they wanted to press charges on against me and I was put in the police car and taken to the station, I'm going to say that when he shut the door, once everybody had left, she looked at him and said, tell me the effing truth because this is, this is, this is what the hell is going on here. That's what I, that's the kind of conversation I reckon happened. And I mean, I was taken to the station. I spent the night in a cell. Now, let me just say, when I was sitting in that cell, looking at that blank wall, they're taking, you know, they changed me, they're taking my shoelaces, all of that stuff. I thought, okay, this is not the best outcome ever because I'm now been arrested and I'm sitting in a cold cell. But that couldn't, what just happened couldn't have gone any better because he was in, first of all, he could have been out that day. He answered the door. I managed to hold it open and get my foot in front of it just before he slammed it in my face because that wouldn't have been a good thing. And I got enough time in front of him to say everything that I wanted to say, so much so that at the end of the conversation, I was like, have you got anything else to say to me before I go? So I was sitting in that cell thinking that couldn't have gone any better and now I will take the repercussions. And that repercussions were three visits to court, they were charging me. He was charging me with stalking and harassment, stalking for finding out where he lives, harassment for the amount of times I've tried to contact him, and assault for pushing him in the chest when he tried to slam the door in front of, on me. 
Now, the court hearings, I mean, they're a podcast of their own. Like, honestly, the story there, the day, I, I went three times, I pleaded not guilty. But in summary, by the end of the third day, I felt like everyone in that courtroom believed me. When the whole case, the case started, the, actually when the case started, I felt like everyone just thought I was just some mad criminal just wanting money or going there for something else. By the end of the day, everybody was like, yeah, this is, why would anybody, nobody would go to these lengths if it wasn't true. And he crumbled in the dock. He was, he looked weak and I stood there strong and I stood there strong because I felt like I was representing everyone, not just me. Well, this is enough now. This is enough. People, we, we, we are, we are, people are just getting away with this. We're not doing anything about it. When I say getting away with it, I don't mean prison sentences. I mean, they're not even being monitored. They're online. They're on the kids' games that they're playing, chatting to them on the chat box, the dark web, who knows what's going on on there. And I'm like, this is, this is, we just need to start, we just need to sort this out. Like, like we mentioned earlier, we all agree this is one of the worst crimes that is happening on this planet. But we don't want to address it. And it's going to take many of us to just put our foot down and be like, enough is enough. You obviously got some sense of, I wouldn't say justice, but you got some sense of about him by going in that court and being able to explain. Were you convicted of the charges and... You know, were you, you, you know, did you embrace that because you had your day in court, even if the charges were against you and not against your abuser, Jeremy? I suppose it was your platform, your opportunity to tell the system that not only had they fouled you. And I suppose it's difficult to say they fouled you because, as you rightly say, if this happened so many years ago and there was no evidence for the police or the prosecution to prosecute, it's very difficult unless they've been able to gather some evidence over the years that he has consistently gone on to abuse other children and maybe including his, his own without any of that information or any other victims of him coming forward, then it's just as it always is in these cases, your word against his word. But let me ask you this. Your your immediate family and people that were around you at the time that this was going on when you were eight years old, they've now discovered when you were 27 years old that you were the victim of abuse from somebody that they had engaged with to look after you, that they brought in. What was their reaction to everything that came out when you were a young man? Their lives have been ripped apart and they will never recover. My immediate family's lives have been ripped apart and they will never, ever recover. End of. My friends that were around at that time, they feel sad. They feel angry. I'm very fortunate that I'm still friends with lots of them, five or six of them. They were around when this was all going on. They can't believe it. They feel some guilt. They feel like maybe they didn't notice anything. This, this situation is not just affecting, it's not, it's not just affecting the victim. There's an echo of destruction. Can you imagine if you're the parent of a, of a, of a, of a, and your child comes out with this and, and it was all happening under your nose? You, you don't recover from that. You don't recover. There's no recovery. So this adds the fuel to my fire. This does because not only has he 
I don't want to say affected my life. He, not only has he adjusted my life in a way that it was never meant to be adjusted, but he has now ruined, to a certain extent, the people that are closest to me. And that is something that is incredibly sad and incredibly important for me to mention as well. And yes, I have you have you had the I, chance to talk to your family? Sorry, Jeremy, but have you had the chance to sort of no problem? Or you've had the conversations that have needed to be had, where I, I I'm sure you were not blaming them or anything like that. But that conversation has been had and that's cleared things as best as it can. I've communicated that the best I possibly can, and it's not a continuous conversation because it's too tough for people to have that conversation because it brings it back into reality. But those conversations have been had. And I hope that with the work that I'm creating, trying to make a positive change from it, that they can get some strength from seeing me do that. So I I am trying my hardest to let people know that it was nobody's fault except for the man that did it. Nobody's fault. And, and where's your head at at the moment? Because I suppose, you know, I've been through my own experience of being wrongly imprisoned and I use that negative for a positive now in the work that I do. Um, people often think that, how can you go back into a prison after you spent years trying to get out? And I ask the same question of you. How, how can you you know, develop this platform where you want to educate people, where every day is going to remind you of the trauma that you went through? How do you live with that psychologically, physically? And and also, I suppose, be a, a representative who has a voice in this space. And there are lots of people who are prepared to talk about it um, and are still traumatized by it. You don't you know, move those scars. As you say, the box has come forward, you've opened the box and you're dealing with it and taking control of it and i suppose that empowers you but but why why do we not just move on why do we not say i tried the prosecution didn't happen i can move on in my own life and i don't want to live that why why do we not do that why do you not do that jeremy because that's not helping all the children that are going through a situation at the moment and it's not helping anybody that is just coming out of a situation and learning to deal with what's going on and all the children, that the unborn children who would possibly go through a situation. For me, just to move on and forget about it all, that's not, that's, that's not adding anything to the prevention pot. Not one thing, not one, not one coin is going in the prevention pot if I just move on and forget about it. Now, personally, for me, if I can squeeze some good out of the experience, then I can lie on my deathbed and be like, okay, we did something powerful with that. It wasn't just sadness and sorrow. It was an empowerment and strength. And that is a, that is a, that is a mission that has now given my life fulfillment. So I have now, three years ago, what I did was I collected all the savings that I had, financial savings. I got rid of my flat. I got rid of all the excess stuff that I had. I packed everything that I needed into my car and I started on this mission. Now, I had good savings because I was being paid well as an engineer. Three years later down the line, I've been staying in people's spare rooms to cut accommodation costs, try to get this project off the ground. Now I'm on my last bits of money. So I've had a very fortunate time to work this project full time. So that's all the films, the YouTube channel, the website, the social media accounts. And now I'm coming to the end of my money. I'm going for government grants now. I'm going for funding. I'm I'm just trying to make this happen. And actually, when I look back at it, 
I often say the gift and the curse of my child's sexual abuse. Because the curse is the obvious. But the gift is I've now got this mission that I wake up every morning for and I'm like, right, what's next? Who are we chatting to today? What are we progressing today? What are the ideas we're brainstorming today? Who am I working with today? Where's that film progression? Where's this going on? I've just got in contact with this company. It's like this incredible, incredible vision and, and, and enthusiasm about life. But what's your ultimate goal then? You're at that point now where you are, you've got the website, something to say, you've empowered yourself, you're empowering other people, you're giving people a platform to engage and get involved. What's your ultimate goal, Jeremy? And I know, you know, to to suggest that, you know, to eradicate abuse is never going to happen, to give people an opportunity to feel strong to speak out or to give them a safe space. And there's lots of that around, isn't there, for child abuse victims and for abusers um, in some way, shape or form. So what's your ultimate goal? What do you want people to know? And how can people help you do what you're doing, especially those who are listening to this podcast who themselves may never have made the decision or have not you know, reach that space that you did when you were 27 years old to to sort of talk about what's happened to them or somebody that they know it's happened to, or even if they're an abuser themselves. I mean, what's your message to those individuals? Because, you know, if we can stop the abusers by educating them as well, that what they're doing is wrong. Some people say it's a sickness. Some people say it's a perversion. Some people just say they have a an ulterior sex drive as opposed to um, you, you know, heterosexual, gay, or whatever kind of relationship. So, what what can we learn from this, Jeremy? What's the message? Okay, so my three targets, my three goals are: I want to produce a theatre production that we go on tour with, including schools and colleges. And when I say theatre production, I want something engaging, something that is like dramatised, and and you can't stop. You know, you're fully engaged with the story subsequently learning about the subject so number one is is a theater production that we can get into schools with and go go on tour with number two is i want a program on netflix something like the queen's gambit and the reason why i say the queen's gambit is because the queen's gambit is about chess predominant that's its storyline And what it did was it got people so interested in chess that eBay and Amazon reported that they just completely sold out chessboards. An old-fashioned game that nobody was playing, that program managed to get everybody's eyes and interest on the subject of chess. Why can't we do the same? So number one goal, theatre. Number two goal, Netflix. And number three goal is I want to speak on podcasts like Joe Rogan's podcast. And I don't understand why we can't go to places like that massive platforms with people that will be concerned about this topic and we talk about it in a way that people can't turn off. They're three, my three big, big goals. And on the good days, I don't see why I cannot achieve them. What, how people can help is please just come and check out the work. Come and watch a few videos. Come and check out the website. Come and check out the social media. Come and follow. I have a donate button there as well on the website. If you wish to donate to the work that I'm creating financially, please do. But just come along for the journey. It's ever evolving. It's ever evolving. And it's exciting and it's encouraging. So please just come and join the journey. And what would you say to those who, like you, and to a certain age, 
they've not been able to sort of talk about it or, or speak about it. I mean, you said that when you spoke to your first friend, they were supportive and everything. And I suppose that's the message, isn't it? That people shouldn't be afraid to speak out and that people are not going to look at them differently, um, not necessarily as a victim, but also not necessarily as, as somebody who is different, you, you know, because it was not your fault. It, it can never be your fault if you've been the victim of, of child abuse in any way, shape or form, or even as an adult, you know, being raped or sexually assaulted in any way as an adult. And you sometimes think maybe it was because of this or because of that. But there is no because of this or because of that. And people need to be aware of that. That's the first question. And the second one, do you have any messages what do you say? Because I have no idea. What do you say to an abuser? I mean, my only thing is stop, stop doing what you're doing. But that falls on deaf ears. What what, what have you learned that that might help make a difference? The thing that I'd say to anybody that's going through or has been through a situation like that and is trying to manage the memories throughout their life is first thing is just that stay strong you can do it. If you feel like you need to speak, if you feel an urge to speak out, but you've got no one around you that you trust enough to do that, then please do go online. There are fantastic Facebook groups and communities, as an example, where you can share your story with other people. If sharing your story feels like that's way too much and something that you don't want to do, which I completely understand, I completely understand that, but you still want to kind of get it off your chest, then please do consider getting a piece of paper and a pen and writing your story down. And just write it in a way that when you read it back to yourself, it makes you feel strong. So that's something, just some brief things I'd like to say to people who have been through an experience like that. To the people that are doing this, what I want to say to you is you have to realize that what you are doing to that child is going to adjust their life in a detrimental way and you are having an effect a long-lasting effect on their life you must stop now i know there are a, a large percentage or a percentage of these people that are doing things these things that, that can't resist the temptation but would love to be able to resist the temptation it's almost like an addiction for them i say to them you must seek help you must seek help because there is a way that you can stop doing this and there is a way that you can resist the temptation for the rest of your life so that then you will not hurt anybody your head where's your head at jeremy just as a final word it sounds like you've been empowered it sounds like you're on a mission i hope you you managed to achieve those three goals and like you say they they are achievable you you know the right person in the right place the right ears the right people listening you know your story getting out there as much as you possibly can but the way that you want to do it i love the idea of a theatre play because you can you can tackle it in a way that is engaging because when people first hear child abuse i could never personally i can never watch a documentary about anything that has the word child abuse i can never watch a documentary that has things going in that route yet you will watch um all kinds of crime films dramas or things that have child sexual abuse or have rape and, and things like that and you still you, you you know you kind of watch it and and think it's all part of the drama but actually it should be educating people so just as a final word, where's your head at, Jeremy? And are you in a good place and are things working the way they should be working? I'm in a good place. Nine days out of the 10. The one day out of the 10, I feel some doubt, but that's just natural human human nature, right? 
I'm in a good place. I've got the goals. I've got the plan set up. We're going to achieve it. We're going to go. We are going all out on this. Like really just come along for the journey and, and, and enjoy the ride, let's say. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your story. And I hope that people who have been listening to this see it for what it is. You know, it's a sensitive subject, but I think you, you, you know, you explain it very powerfully, your testimony uh, and the way you went about doing what you went about doing is, is really interesting. And it also shows that you can take this on without it having to be so sensitive that it's uncomfortable that you can talk about it and, and your testament to that. So thank you very much for sharing your story with, with my podcast listeners, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Although Jeremy's story is a tough one to hear, it is also inspiring. If you've been triggered by what you've heard and need help or advice, please use the links in the show notes to reach out to those who can provide help or guidance. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share it with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need your support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. If you want to connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Just look for Raphael Rowe. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J. Rowe Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.